Danusha Lamaris, and you are listening to KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM, and this is the Hive Poetry Collective. Tonight we're going to be talking about the annual Morton Marcus Poetry Reading, which has come upon us again. It is already October, and even November by the time you listen to this. And mark your calendars. The event is coming up on Thursday, November 12th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And it's always a fantastic event. This year it's being hosted as a Zoom webinar by UC Santa Cruz. And you can register at thi.ucsc.edu. I will repeat that later on in the program, but that's just so you know, right up at the front of the hour. And tonight we're going to be talking about the featured reader, Morgan Parker, who will be joining again by Zoom, by webinar. And let me tell you a little bit about her. Morgan Parker is a poet, essayist, and novelist. She's the author of the young adult novel, Who Put This Song On? And the poetry collections, Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, and Magical Negro, which won the 2019 National Book Critics Circle Award. Parker's debut book of nonfiction is forthcoming from One World. She's the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship, winner of a Pushcart Prize, and has been hailed by the New York Times as a dynamic craftsperson of considerable consequence to American poetry. She received her bachelor's in anthropology and creative writing from Columbia University and her MFA in poetry from NYU. She's a Kaveh Kahnem graduate fellow and creator and host of the live talk show Reparations Live. She co-curates the PWA reading series and is also one half of the Other Black Girl Collective. Parker lives in Los Angeles with her dog Shirley and lets us know that she is a Sagittarius. So I hope you enjoy the show. It will be myself and Dion O'Reilly talking about the work of Morgan Parker, and in particular, her two most recent books of poetry. So I hope you enjoy it. And thanks again for joining us here at KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Welcome listeners, this is Danusha Lamaris, and you are listening to KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, 
and this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm here tonight with Dion O'Reilly. Hi, Denisha. Thanks for asking me to come in to talk about Morgan Parker. Sure thing. I'm glad we're doing this. And uh, Dion, you know her from other shows if you've been listening to the Hive. And she's also the author most recently of Ghost Dogs, which you haven't, if you haven't read it already, you might want to go and order it from your favorite um, small local bookstore, ideally. Is that the best way to order your book or from the publisher as well? Bookshop Santa Cruz, they always have it on order. Uh, They always have it on the shelves, um, but you can get it anywhere you get your books. Great. So if they're listening from somewhere far away, order it from wherever you love ordering your books. And we are going to talk tonight about Morgan Parker, whose poems uh, and whose books are that we have in our possession, Magical Negro. I'll be reading from this book. And Dion, you're going to be reading from? There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. <laughs> Both pretty great titles. No? Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce also has an amazing cover, a photograph of a Black woman on the cover, which is just a, a great cover. I would and isn't she reclined? She's reclined on a bed. Yeah, she's required. She's kind of manspreading on a bed uh-huh, a uh-huh. Uh, with a an open window behind her with a with a big semi truck. So it's just, and she's got a very kind of like disgusted expression on her face, kind of tough and disgusted expression on her face. <laughs> A pretty, it's a pretty fabulous hardcore cover. I love it. And uh, we're going to alternate, doing a little back and forth, sharing these poems and talking about them. And in preparation for Morgan Parker being the featured reader for this year's Morton Marcus Poetry event, which is always an amazing event, going to be hosted by UCSC and virtually this year because it's a very virtual kind of year. Dan, do you want to start us in with a poem? Okay, I will. I will start in with a poem called, If You Are Overstaying Woke. If You Are Overstaying Woke. She has amazing titles for her poems. So after maybe after this poem, I'll just read through the table of contents and read some of her titles. This one is called, If You Are Overstaying Woke. Water, the plants, drink plenty of water. Don't hear the news, get bored. Complain about the weather. Keep a corkscrew in your purse. Swipe right sometimes. Don't smile unless you want to. Sleep in. Don't see the news. Remember what the world is like for white people. Listen to cricket songs. Floss. Take pills. Keep an empty mind. When you are hungover, do not say, I'm never drinking again. Be honest when you're up to it. Otherwise, drink water, lie to yourself, turn off the news, burn the papers, skip the funerals, take pills, laugh at dumb F people you don't care about, use the crock pot, use the juicer, use the smoothie maker, drink water from the sky. Don't think too much about the sky. Don't think about water, skip the funerals, Close your eyes whenever possible. When you toast, look everyone in the eyes. Never punctuate the president. Write the news, turn 
into water. Water, the fire escape. Burn the paper, crumble the letters. Instead of hyacinths, pick hydrangeas. Water the hydrangeas. Wilt the news. White the hydrangeas. Drink the white. Waterfall, the cricket songs. Keep a song mind. Don't smile. Don't wilt. Funeral, funeral. Wow. <laughs> well, we talk about a list poem sometimes, right? As poets, we talk about a poem that is a list of things. It's, that is the form of it. And what a list poem this is. It's a list of commands of things to do when you are over staying woke. <laughs> You're just over it. It's a lot of energy to be woke. It, apparently, it takes too much, and sometimes you just need a day off. There really is some good advice in here. It's what? never a bad idea to drink water. <laughs> that is good. Plain, good, plain, old-fashioned advice, isn't it? I guess you can drink too much water, but it doesn't happen very often. So <laughs> really, she just keeps going back to the water. Just drink some water. And I have to agree with her over the advice to floss. And to floss. And there's, you know, underneath this poem, and it's humor, I think there, there's something funny about it because of saying things like floss and, you know, there's humor in it, but there's also, it, it's covering up a certain kind of, I want to say exhaustion. Yeah. Of always reckoning with the current moment and its complexities and in particular, both of these books really grapple with race and being a black woman in America. And there's just, there's that weariness under it. And there's this sort of a fierce, dark humor, isn't there? Yes, there's, there's definitely a lot of humor. And there's a kind of a repetition. She keeps returning to water and a few other things over and over again, as if you never really start, stop coping with it. Yeah. But she does say in this interview that I saw on Poetry Foundation, she says, she says, um, I'm definitely, uh, I often conflate and commingle serious and funny. I'm definitely the kind of person who undercuts a deep confession with a joke. I tell a lot of jokes in therapy. I laugh at myself. It's how I process trauma, both personal and communal. Mm, so there it is and there's some you can sense that right because the way the poem builds the way it keeps cycling back to itself and as you said to the water the water the water the flowers the flowers can you read that very last riff again like that build up to the end turn let's see never punctuate the president write the news turn into water water the fire escape burn the paper, crumble the letters, instead of hyacinths pick hydrangeas, water the hydrangeas, wilt the news, white the hydrangeas, drink the white waterfall, the cricket songs, keep a song mine, don't smile, don't wilt, funeral, funeral. It kind of hurls out of control at the it, end. That's what it does. Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly the way to put it. It spirals right out of our hands. Because... Sorry, go ahead. Well, just the water wilt, white wilt. It keeps coming back to that. And it makes me think how white is a funeral color in many cultures. And it's coming, keeps coming back to these flowers, the sense of trying to keep the flowers alive, but not being able to. And then funeral, funeral. 
And when I'm reading this poem, usually when I read a poem, there'll be a line where I can almost relax because it's narrative and there's something expected about the language where I just know my readers are gonna understand me so I can go through it more quickly. There's never anywhere in this poem where I feel like I can relax while I'm reading it, even though it's telling me to relax. <laughs> right, right. It's, but it's what it's performing or enacting is the opposite of that, isn't it? It's, it's anxiety producing. There is, it's, so in, in other words, it's saying there is no time off. I really liked the line it's actually three lines because this is written in a very narrow column. Remember what the world is like for white people. I really like that line because so many of my nice white liberal friends like to post on social media of imagine what it's like for black people. You, imagine um, what it's like to have a son going out and you don't know if they're going to come home alive, which I can appreciate. But I don't think that you see much of the other way around. That's um, really interesting. And, and it's, it's sort of like in her use of it, it's calling up something different, right? Because the usage you describe, it's like imagine into a sense of empathy, right? Imagine that. And in this sense, I think it's like imagine living without certain burdens. Mm, imagine yeah. that. What would that be like? Like a way to have a recess from one's own. It's just aspirational. It's aspirational. Imagine your burdens minus certain ones, the so racial burdens. When it's white to black, it's more empathetic, be empathetic. When it's black to white, it's more aspirational. I feel like that's true in what this is saying. Like, imagine your life without that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, poignancy, a lot of poignancy. I really, what I appreciate about Morgan's poems, one of the things is that yeah, they're edgy for one thing, but they also um, are very unflinchingly honest about her personal experience. And I think some of my favorite ones are where she really delves into that vulnerable space. So I'm going to, I'll read one as well for us to talk about. It's part of a longer poem. This is part three of a longer series called The History of Black People. Let's just say this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7. Oh, yeah. We like to say that to just remember where we are. And who we are. <laughs> we, you know, you can't use enough reminders of that these days. <laughs> we are on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And you're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective. And this is Danusha about to read a poem by Morgan Parker from the History of Black People in her book, Magical Negro. Three, single black female cries into a glass of rosé on a Friday in April at 10.54 p.m. is once again an unpleasant movie date, makes every little thing political, needlessly references Paula Abdul's stint as a Laker girl, wakes up fevering in the dark afraid of trust, forever sucking on a technical bad mood, imagines her bones damned, false teeth in the grass below her feet, is a patient culprit, names her heart a dumb tick. Forgive us our dissonance, we hold shame close, a black boy's hairline 
finally puts us to sleep. A sea creature shucks sand for gems. Mm. A lot in there. It's almost a sonnet. Looking at it on the page, it's a 13-lined thing. It's sonnet-esque. Sonnets don't have to be exactly 14, so maybe it, we can just name this a sonnet. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if she would. But there's something about this that just speaks to, I think, a deep kind of, the, the particular kind of loneliness that you feel when you're actually with someone is different than when you're completely alone. So this is either during a date or after. And there's just a particular loneliness when there's a disconnect, isn't there? Yes. The character seems so troubled by the world that she can't connect. I love the line, wakes up fevering in the dark, afraid of trust. But it could also be read since she doesn't punctuate it like that. Wakes up fevering in the dark, afraid of trust. Like dark, afraid of trust is one thing. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? And looking at how it's laid out on the page where the line break is after fevering. Wakes up fevering in the dark, afraid of trust. So, you know, again, dark, darkness, being dark skinned and that re the relationship between that and trust. Hmm is underlined from what you're pointing out. I'm seeing that. She, the character in the poem is obsessed with Paula, Paula Abdul's stint as a Laker girl. And it seems to regret having mentioned it. Right. Why do you think that would be an obsession? What about Paula Abdul being a Laker girl might be such a trigger for her. Oh my gosh. Okay. I can only reference growing up in the eighties and Paula Abdul came out. She was a, yeah, Laker girl turned choreographer, turned singer, like pop singer. But when she was transitioning from Laker girl into her pop life, she was doing stuff like choreographing for people like Janet Jackson. And so there's something of a cultural moment there um that it speaks to i don't know maybe that has to do with i mean going from laker girl to being sort of your own famous person maybe there's something about that again aspiration um in thinking about paula abdul i can't really say that's is such a becoming, is she becoming is she becoming less of a sellout or more of a sellout <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know if it's on the sellout continuum. Um, I don't know. Here's something she also said in that interview. As a black woman in 2015, which is when this took place, wow. my everyday life includes a lot of media and reference. Names of friends and celebrities, quotes from movies, song titles, artwork, books. People often ask me about this as a poetic device. Its roots in modernism or the New York school but it's fundamental to hip hop, which I see as part of my lineage as much as poetry. Rap verses are jammed packed with intricate, complicated references, names, inside jokes, wordplay. So that's kind of fun. And it's an interesting choice to make as a writer. Are we going to include all of the cultural references 
of the moment when we're alive or exclude them and sort of take on an imagined um, timelessness? That's especially hard in the day, in the Trump days, when you want to specifically write about this moment because it seems so jagged. It's true. There's like, in this moment, politically, because of um, race issues that are so on the fore, because of what's happening in politics, because of the coronavirus, it's particularly hard to escape our moment, nor would we necessarily want to in our art. So she made the choice years ago, clearly not to try to escape the moment, but to really speak to it. I I love this uh, line, um, names her heart a dumb tick. Yes, because when you're hearing that, it could be a tick like the little arachnid that sucks your blood, but it's also the heart tick-tocking, the heart's ticking, and it is spelled like the tick-tock, like your heart ticking, right? Isn't that wild? So I, I, both times I read it, you know, reading it to myself and reading it aloud, I saw the creature, I saw the little eight-legged thing, which was so weird and disturbing. And I heard the sound. So it's sort of like both things happened to me. And I think it's kind of brilliant when we can get an image to do that. And it's definitely disturbing, isn't it? To think of your heart as an insect. Or a dumb clock, kind of a dumb clicking clock. Yeah, it could be that too. A dumb tick, like just something that goes on whether or not you want it to. So there's, I'm reading a real sadness in that. The first sentence is almost the whole poem. It's like eight lines long. And then we have four short sentences at the end. The four short sentences at the end come after the dumb tick. Um, Names her heart a dumb tick, period. Forgive us our dissonance. We hold shame close. A black boy's hairline finally puts us to sleep. A sea creature shucks sand for gems. It's a kind of an up note at the end. I know, I'm looking at that. It's sort of, there's some redemption there, the way that I'm reading it. We usually shuck sea creatures open, right? Mussels. Mm -hmm oysters but here but sea creatures also open those um mollusks right a sea creature shucks sand though the sand itself so it's kind of like it's looking for something valuable like it's panning for gold sort of kind of like that like let's look for it wherever it is that's a pretty up ending compared to the beginning. Single black female cries into a glass of rosé on a Friday in April at 10.54 p.m. is once again an unpleasant movie date. <laughs> once again, I was an unpleasant movie date. Oh, I think I've been an unpleasant movie date. Yeah, I've fallen asleep. <laughs> I've walked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that kind of that lands right in the middle for me tonally. That ending, because what are your chances of luck? Uh, maybe they're kind of good. Maybe you'll find something valuable there in the sand. Yeah, maybe that is a slight up 
uptick, right? From the, where we start out. Um, hard to say. Would you like to read us another one, Dan? Well, I was wanting to read a little bit of an essay that she wrote at the Vida website. And it's almost like a poem. It's so leapy. So I thought I'd read a few paragraphs from this essay, if that's okay. Right. I think I've, I've taken a look at this too. Can you give us the name of it? Well, that unfortunately I cannot because I cut it off on my copy. It's on, if you Vida Morgan Parker and the first line, I get along with white people really well, is the first line. Okay. I'm sure and I'll not. see if I can find the title. Okay, thank you. I get along with white people really well. Growing up, they brought peppermint bark down the cul-de-sac to my parents' house every Christmas. They smiled at me, lone brown spot in the classroom, as we read Dr. King's speech every February. In my graduate writing program, white classmates complimented my Afro with liberal fingers, applauded my poems for their sass and bravado, asked me to explain references in Harriet Mullen's work while we were out for drinks. They're my white friends and I'm their black friend. White people love me. It's kind of my thing. I have never given a performance to an all black audience. For weeks, she asked from the chair across from mine, can you describe that loneliness? My therapist is a young, thin white woman who isn't following the protests in Ferguson. What does that loneliness feel like? I kind of sink into the chair as a performance and flip my wrist. It feels regular and a little glamorously sad. She says, can you think of the first time you felt that? I say, generations ago. She says we have to stop. I notice my mask slipping. I put it back on before walking out to Fifth Avenue, weeping quietly in front of the gap. Having grown up in the 90s heyday of I don't see color and hearing the budding subconscious white supremacy and statements like, you don't act black, the playground was where I first learned about acceptance and its price, where I learned to make myself small, nod graciously and thanks for approval. The playground is where I learned who makes the rules, where I learned that my identity is not up to me. When we played house, my white girlfriends called dibs on being the teenage daughter. They stuck out their thumb and pinky fingers and made their hands a phone. They flipped their stringy hair. For my role, I was presented with two options, the adopted daughter or the family dog. Wow, that is powerful. And I was reading along with you, Deanne. I did follow the link. And the essay is titled, Report from the Field, White People Love Me dispatches from the token. Oof. Yeah. We feel that title. And again, as you said, it was published um, in Vida Women in Literary Arts. And it Vida V-I-D-A, as in life. And you know, what what a what a very personal and intimate look at this situation of feeling like one is under the spotlight somehow is almost performing oneself. 
when people say, you know, you don't talk black, or can you tell me what Harriet Mullen meant? And that sense of being sort of the one in the dental chair. She, at the end of the article, she says, I can't carry all of it. Yeah. I can't carry all of it. And in the, it's written as sort of a, a ritual act in a way, I think this essay is, to step out of that role. You know, here we have the writer saying, I'm, I'm spitting out the token. I'm, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And also how her identity has been formed in that, by that role. Mm -hmm. And that it's done out of what one is put in the spotlight often out of something that is like good intention. And so it's a really complex thing to be talking about that when someone's asking you, well, how do you know you're a black woman? How do you feel about that? Or what is your take on it? And I'm familiar with that too, of being in environments where often I'm the only black person or one of a few. There are often things I want to give voice to. And there's also a sense of, oh, do we have to do this again? And it, where I'm the person trying to speak for, you know, a whole people, are we doing that again? where there's something exhausting that can happen. And so I really relate to that in it too. And I, I feel in this, she's stepping outside of even saying that the people who mainly do it are even ill-intentioned. It's just that it's still what it is. She says, I am more tired than I am angry. Yeah. I fill the void, I turn into the void. This is called being accepted. Oh my gosh. Yeah, what a line. And it's in, it was interesting to me when you read the part about the therapist. There's a lot to say about that. But one of the things is she says, I step outside and my mask slips. This was written in 2014, published then. So it's, you know, we picture all the masks we're now wearing. Another odd level that we're all wearing masks. There's so much to say and, and write about that and will be in the future, I'm sure. But I think it's the thing of having to always represent oneself and explain oneself. So the part with the therapist, you know, can you tell me about that loneliness? Well, that's what, that's how therapists talk. And there's that other level, I think, in here of feeling that because of the difference in race, that the, the therapist who's asking doesn't have a mirror for that kind of loneliness in herself. And the answer, well, the therapist asks, when did this begin? And the speaker says, Generation, <clears throat> generations ago. That's powerful too, isn't it? I'd like to um, refresh our radio ID. Since we're just getting into talking about Morgan Parker and that essay, that you are listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, K-Squid, 90.7 FM. And this is Danusha Lamaris. I'm here with Dion O'Reilly. And we're talking about the work of Morgan Parker. And in particular, her books, There Are Things More Beautiful Than Beyonce and Magical Negro. Morgan is this year's Morton Marcus poetry reader here at UC Santa Cruz.
like to know more about the Hive Poetry Collective, you can look us up on Facebook, the Hive Poetry Collective, right there on Facebook. We have our own page. And if you'd like to take a look at our website, it is www.thehivepoetry.org. It's our aim to bring more poetry to the Santa Cruz community and beyond by sharing local readings, interviews with poets and publishers, and events. So stay tuned. And if you're not already checking out the Zoom Forward Poetry events, you might want to do that. They've been going strong ever since quarantine started back in March, I believe. You can look them up at p. Sorry, www.phren-z.com. So frenzy.com on the Frenzy website. There will be listings there for the weekly Friday at 5 p.m. Frenzy poetry readings online. You can register for those, and they've been really wonderful community gatherings as well as great poetry readings. So I want to highly recommend those as well. Thanks for joining us. SQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is Danusha Lamaris, joined by Dion O'Reilly, and we're talking about the work of the poet Morgan Parker. Now back to our discussion. And uh, maybe we can turn to a poem. Let's do it. Okay. It's, I just want to say that it's going to be fun to hear her read uh, the Morgan, Morton Marcus reading because I'll bet you she is a really fun reader. I feel like she is because of the titles. Do you want to share? We had that moment where you and I were admiring her titles. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you want to share with us some of these titles? You could just read through the table of contents and it's like a funny poem. Um, Let's see. Poem on Beyonce's birthday. We don't know when we were opened or the origin of the universe. My vinyl weighs a ton. Beyonce is sorry for what she won't feel. Robo Beyonce. Freaky Friday starring Beyonce and Lady Gaga. Black woman with a chicken. <laughs> I really like that one. <laughs> Beyonce cheering in Asia breaks down in a white tea. What Beyonce won't say on a shrink's couch. It's getting hot in here, so take off all your clothes. <laughs> Slouching toward Beyonce and let me handle my business, damn. You know, it was almost like you were reading a poem, reading those titles. <laughs> kind of leap in a leapy way go together, which is really fun. They do. Let's see. And she says, I love long titles. I really like the idea of putting everything out on the table up front. There's an urgency to it. 
I need to say everything there is to say immediately. It's an impulse that makes me horrible at first dates, but great at poems. <laughs> oh, it's, there come the disastrous dates again. Yeah, she must have had a few. Some pretty bad dates. She would not be alone in that. And I'm going to read one about a museum, visiting a museum. So I think I'd like to bring up the next one. The High Priestess of Souls Sunday Morning Visit to the Wall of Respect. So it's her going to the museum on a Sunday. The Impressionism wing strikes me as too dainty for my mood, except for one oil painting by Gustave Caillebot, Calf's Head and Ox Tongue, which is described in the wall text as visually unpleasant. A bust of an African woman bums me out. This year I cried at everyone's kitchen table. I spit on the street and was late on purpose and stepped in glass and my dog died and I saw minuses over and over. I'll figure it out. I'll let a man walk away and then another one. It has taken me exactly this long to realize I could have done something else. I'm being repetitive now, but do you ever hate yourself? Yikes. Yeah. I really feel that one. That ending. That ending. And I don't expect to end up there when we start out at the Impressionist Swing. It actually... It makes me think of all these poems by the beloved Billy Collins, where he's wandering around a museum and he's looking at, you know, a landscape with Irish cows or, you know, I don't know if I'm naming the right painting or poem, but that kind of thing. And then he's riffing in very, you know, he's musing in the poem in ways that are really delightful and that make us think about you know, the clouds or the cows. And this time we may have maybe went to Italy. And it's interesting because she's starting us out like that, right? In the impressionist wing of a museum. But here we are. It strikes me as too dainty for my mood, except for one oil painting by Gustave Caillebot, calf's head and ox tongue described which is described in the wall text as visually unpleasant (laughs) it is hilarious that's it's funny right but instead of taking us somewhere whimsical she's taking us already into i guess what i call the broken body the head of a calf the tongue of the ox and you know i i understand what she thinks sometimes about impressionism that sometimes it's a little too pretty for me you don't often see an impressionist painting one that's indoors for one thing and that it's a calf's head and ox tongue. That's not your usual subject for an impressionist painting, but I can just really relate to being in a sour mood and walking around and looking at these, you know, Monet's gardens and Renoir's happy, fleshy white people drinking on a boat. And just going, this does not fit my mood. And then seeing a 
a decapitated cow's head and going, that's more like it. That's a little more resonant, right? And turning around and seeing something like a bust of an African woman and just suddenly just going, oh, I don't know why, but that bums me out. I, I can kind of relate yeah. to this mood. And it's and specifically a bust is some it's a part detached from the rest of the body, kind of like that calf's head, ox's tongue. It's a it's a part. Even though it's the head and we see these busts of all kinds of figures, I could see how it would bum you out. <laughs> and if it is you know, a piece of African art, it was probably, you know, ripped off from Africa and belongs in an African museum. There's all of that subtext too, right? Yeah. And then the leap she makes after that, this year I cried at everyone's kitchen table. I love that leap because it's such a way of talking about sadness. Because poetry's been around a pretty good amount of time, it's hard to say things in a new way. To just say, well, I'm sad. Well, how do we say that? I guess this is one of the ways. This year I cried at everyone's kitchen table. And then the next line, I spit on the street and was late on purpose and stepped in glass. My dog died and I saw minuses over and over. She goes from very specific to abstract, saw minuses over and over, which could be like losing things over and over. Yeah, I think that's a great way of doing that. I saw minuses over and over, period. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. That's a great line. It's such a great line. Why haven't I tried that in a poem? Yeah, I'll it's a kind of thing you want to you kind of just rip off because it's so simple and just something someone would say. Yeah. And it's also a bit hopeful. It's a bit hopeful and a bit resigned. It's again, she hits this point. You know, now that we're looking at, you know, poems back to back, I keep seeing again, uh, I don't know how to feel. It's a bit hopeful, you're right. And then I feel it a bit isn't. I, I hear resignation in that. I'm not sure if this person is going to figure it out. But then again, this voice wrote these poems. So I think they are figuring it out as they go, right? I let a man walk away and then another one. <laughs> yeah. Again, simple and great lines. It has taken me exactly this long to realize I could have done something else. Regret is such a good topic for poetry. Why didn't I do it differently? I think poets very often are nostalgic or they look back on their past and they really want to unpick it. They're pick it apart and think of the ways they could have done it differently. It's just a really common topic for poetry. You have, a poem. you have a poem called Regret. I guess I do, it, except that the R is separated, so it's like egret and regret. And yeah, it's, it's one of those things that is so good in a poem to talk about and so unpleasant in life mm -hmm. to think about is this idea of, you know, what would I have done differently? Because we can't. We can't go back and change anything except kind of on the page, you know, it's taken me exactly this long to realize I could have done something else. I'm being repetitive now, but do you ever hate yourself? Man, this poem really does travel a long way. 
It does in a small space. And that sense of repetitive, perhaps because talking about how I could have done something differently is a way of saying I hate myself in this poem. Repetition of mistakes. I let a man walk away and then another one. That's right. So that too, it's sort of like I've kept doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, another strong one. Did you want to read us one more, Dion? See, which one am I going to read now? Um, well, there's this one called Afro. All righty. It's pretty good. Let's just say this is KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM again, so that people know where they are. And who they are. And who, and who we are. <laughs> Can we answer any more of the W's? That was where and who. Can we answer when? When. Well, if they're listening to this uh, live-ish, then it's after eight on a Sunday night. Where you can usually find, you can find poetry at eight o'clock Sunday night on KSQD 90.7 FM. The Hive Poetry Collective is often here reading poems for your pleasure. I like how often makes it sort of ambiguous. Yeah. Like, like Brigadoon, we could appear or not. <laughs> if you hold us in, our heart, in your heart, we will appear. <laughs> <laughs> what that sounded like but it will be either us or dennis morton reading poems to you so that's the deal you can always tune in for poetry at eight on sundays well i will read afro by morgan parker from her book there are more beautiful things than beyonce afro i'm hiding secrets and weapons in there buttermilk pancake cardboard boxes of purple juice a magic word, our Auntie Angela spoke into her fist and released into hot black evening like gunpowder or a cool. 40 yards of cheap wax prints, the autobiography of Malcolm X, a Zulu folktale warning against hunters drunk on polo shirts, and Jaggermaster, blueprints for building ergonomically perfect dancers and athletes, the chords to what would have been Michael's next song, a mule stuffed with diamonds and gold, Miss Holiday's vocal chords, the jokes Dave Chappelle's been crafting off the grid, sex and brown liquor intended for distribution at Sunday schools in white suburbs, or in other words, exactly what a white glove might expect to find taped to my leg and swallowed down my gullet and locked in my trunk and fogging my dirty mind and glowing like treasure in my autopsy. Oh, man. That really builds too, doesn't it? <laughs> I love this idea that in the Afro, she's hiding sort of all the secrets of blackness. <laughs> you know, as perceived um, in the U.S., right? The jokes Dave Chappelle, Chappelle's been crafting, sex and brown liquor, um, and this thing of the chords to Michael Jackson's next song. So it's like everything that's sort of in the lexicon of American blackness. Or what we view. As it is perceived. 
as is, as it is perceived. Yeah. Buttermilk pancake cardboard. I, I kind of get it, maybe like maybe an Aunt Jemima thing or something. That, there. That's what I'm reading there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Angela, Angela Davis, spoken oh, to her fist. Oh, right. Here I was just picturing my Auntie Angela because I have one. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you're right. And she mentions Angela Davis a lot in these poems, actually. A magic word our Auntie Angela spoke into her fist and released into the hot black evening. That's an amazing line. Like gunpowder or a cool, and that's K-O-O-L, so it's a cool cigarette. Wow, great line. I also love this Zulu fork folktale warning against hunters drunk on polo shirts and Jägermeister. I mean, I'm reading that so many ways because those polo, I mean, those look like frat boys, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, instead of warning against lions, it's warning against those who might um, incite some kind of racially based attack, right? It's, it's, it's pointing at a certain subgroup of frat boys or uh, white guys that are like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, but kind of containing it in a Zulu folktale hidden in my Afro. I mean, this is beyond imaginative and wild, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a warning, a Zulu folktale warning against a certain kind of white supremacist. I say, I'd say. That's how we want to say it. Yeah. Hidden in her Afro. Right. And this blueprints, blueprints for building ergonomically perfect dancers and athletes sounds a little bit like um, eugenics. Kind of. It, or kind of like, you know how people are like, oh, black people can run, black people can dance, black people can do these things. It's kind of like saying, oh, yeah, that's what we are. We're this blueprint for just churning out athletes and dancers. You know what I mean? I'm kind of reading it like that. Like, here's the blueprints. I have them. It's a kind of exoticizing of black athletics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's how I would read that. I mean, that's how I'd read it. How many lines is this? I kind of want to look at, is she doing sonnets again and again? I don't think it's a sonnet. I think it's longer than a sonnet. I think it's a couple of lines longer than a sonnet. You're right. It is. It's just a few over, but it has that kind of compression to it. It's a nice little square. The last line is a little bit like the sea creature that was shucking the sand for um, gems. The last line is, um, and glowing like treasure in my autopsy. Wow. Again, it's kind of like ending in a funeral too, as the last poem did. They tend to end in death. And yet with something that is transcending death in this case the glowing sort of makes it feel like a glowing treasure in my autopsy makes me feel there's some kind of light that has survived death and goes on well it does not end in a period so there's no ending to it and it's all one sentence look at that there is no period mm-hmm. it's all one sentence it doesn't end oh that's so interesting 
We can geek out here on punctuation, can't we? Geek on punctuation. I'm hiding secrets and weapons in there. Buttermilk, pancake, cardboard, boxes of purple juice, a magic word. Our Auntie Angela spoke into her fist and released into the hot black evening like gunpowder or a cool. It just goes. Once she gets on that run, she stays on it. And I think that's something that sort of typifies her poems, too. There's a kind of a compression an intensity, a density, I almost want to say. And a leapiness. And a leapiness. So you're going to get a lot in every bite, a lot of images to sort of chew on and work through and digest. There's just a lot of, of muchness in these poems. Thingitude. Thingitude and muchness. And this is another list poem. It's a list of things uh, that, are in, that are in her afro. And I think that that, I think that there is a certain mystery about Afros to white people. I remember when Afros, being an old lady, I remember when Afros were a thing. And I can remember kids on the bus just hammering this kid with an Afro, like, what's in your Afro? Oh. I remember uh, something like that. How do you comb that out? Just asking him all these questions about his Afro on the bus. Wow. And this, in a way, is the answer to that mm-hmm. kind of experience of being harassed on the bus by other kids. It's saying, well, okay, I'll tell you what it is. And yeah. And Afros were seen as a kind of radicalism. Like right. Anthony Davis' Afro was ginormous. Right. <laughs> it's sort of a complete stepping out of the expected beauty norms and the pressure. You know, I think people don't realize how many kids still get, you know, black kids get sent home from school for just having African textured hair. Really? Oh, see, I'm telling you news. So good. We're talking about this. Um, Get sent home because they're considered to have an inappropriate hairstyle when it's just like having even a small afro or having braids or having hair that is curly textured and that is not white kids hair. And it is such an issue still. If you look around, you'll see that pop up in the papers that parents are advocating for their kids or upset that their kids now going to have a mark on their attendance um, and all that kind of thing when it is just their hair. Not being allowed to come to school as yourself. Yeah. Put on a costume, be something else. And then maybe it'll be almost okay. So, yeah, I feel like she's really talking about that here and so many other things. I feel like every day I learn something else about America that I don't want to know, (laughs) that I need to know and don't want to know. Oh, Dion. Well, you and the rest of us right now, and, you know, we the, talk about moments. This is a particularly challenging moment. Here we are recording this show. It's about, mm, what is it? Less than two weeks from the election in the U.S. Just over a week. And intense times. So, dear listener, here's where we take a little break because Dion's dog started barking. It was Asta, otherwise known as Boo Boo, and she's a really good dog. She just got a little worked up. All right. So how's it going with the dog over there? 
<laughs> well, this is the problem with having to record Zoom interviews in the time of COVID. But you know, I live on a ranch and you know, we're lucky that a bull didn't go charging through my living room. I think we can all be grateful for that. Yeah. I keep trying to record things and coyotes and dogs come on board both. And it's actually adds a sort of a nice texture to a poetry reading to have at least a coyote. Yeah. For, for poetry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can't complain, but okay. For a radio show, we're trying not to have that, but we want to thank all of you for tuning in and learning a little bit about Morgan Parker and her poems and her books, magical Negro. And there are more beautiful things than Beyonce. And we encourage you to check her out and also to tune in this Thursday night to the Morton Marcus poetry reading event, which will be online with UCSC and I will give you the deets. Thanks for tuning in and thanks, Dion. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Denisha. Sure thing. Bye. So again, if you're interested in attending this year's event, you can register through the Humanities Institute at UCSC through thi.ucsc.edu. And the Morton Marcus event will be this Thursday, November 12th at 7 p.m. Pacific time, presented through Zoom webinar. Hope to see you there.